0: And welcome back to War Starts at Midnight, the podcast dedicated to taking deep dives into directors' filmographies and paying penance for our cinematic sins. I'm Chris Gallagher, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Jacob Graves. Bonjour. And Peterson Hill.
1: Your favorite intern.
0: On each episode of our series, The Magnificent Andersons, we explore another element of the oeuvres of American auteurs Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson. Guys, what are we bantering about today?
2: Well, we've got a review of Wes Anderson's stab at a seafaring adventure film, The
1: Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. Plus, we've got a recommendation for the perfect beer to share with Papa Steve on the high seas. And of course, we'll wrap up the show as you always do with some really rad recommendations.
0: But first. Hey, guys. What's up?
1: What's going on, Chris?
0: This is probably the Wes Anderson film that I'm at least up to this point, the most, uh, I don't know, nervous to talk about, I guess.
2: Really? I, I had, the, I had the impression that this was one of your favorites.
0: It is one of my favorites, but it's also, I feel like the first film that really starts to, you know, if, if you are a Wes Henderson detractor who was on board for a little bit and then fell off at some point, this is where people started jumping ship. No pun intended there. Uh, oh. I don't know where it lands now, you know, we're 16 years out, so I don't know what people's feelings are, but that's, that's kind of what I want to do up top. Like we always do. I want to gauge sort of coming into this movie, where were you guys, were you feeling Life Aquatic? Were you not? What was your experience with it?
2: This is actually the first um uh, Wes Anderson movie that I saw in the the right time period or when it came out. I didn't see it in theaters. But I went to a friend's house and we went in the uh, the room above their garage where they had a a projector, which was pretty early on to have a projector. So it's not like it was great or anything. But we uh, had a had a DVD of Life Aquatic that one of our friends brought over and was like, you guys are going to love this. And we sat in a mostly silent room because nobody found too much humor in it aside from me and the guy who brought the DVD. And at the end of it, I was like, that's a weird movie. And I don't think I can recommend it to anybody because it's so weird. But I think I really enjoyed that. And then I didn't revisit it for probably about a decade. And when I watched it again, I was like, no, no, this is this is really great. And it hit all the, the right buttons at the time. And I uh, fully uh, embraced this movie, said, oh, no, no, I, I get it. This is really, really great. Uh, but also by that time, I watched a lot more French cinema, which I think this draws a lot out of and we'll probably get into later. And so uh, that's where I was coming into this. I've only seen it those two times that I can remember. And then just uh, maybe little pieces here and there. But uh, so I I was really excited to get back
1: into this.
0: What about you, Peterson?
1: So I saw this the same day in 2004 that I saw The Aviator. Um, Came out the same day. I saw it back to back, I believe.
2: Um, Did you live at a theater?
1: My high school through... College years were primarily camped out in a theater. Um, I knew the clerks and the concession people. Um, What are we talking? In AMC? AMC in high school and then a Cobb in college. Um, But – so I saw the same day as Aviator, which I recommended the Aviator last podcast to kind of connect it there. But for me, uh, I saw it that day and – was a little bit ambivalent about it. I didn't quite understand my thoughts on it. Didn't know if I liked it or disliked it. Um, by the time it came out on video, I was working at Blockbuster and I got five free free rentals a week. So I rented it again, tried to figure out kind of what my feelings were. Um, kind of ambivalent again, Uh pieced my thoughts together a little bit more. And ever since I've kind of had this real complicated relationship with it, where I think there's some really poignant and beautiful moments, but something about, I think it's the plottiness and the way that it doesn't really have a firm structure Mm -hmm. that I think it kind of caves in on itself. Um, But there's things that I, I do respect about it, but it's just something about it caves in on itself. Um, And that was every time up until now, I've always kind of had that same thought and feeling.
0: I think I've said this on the podcast before, but this is the, if not the first one of the first, and then the strongest memory of, um, a film that I was disappointed in, in the theater. I remember seeing this, uh, with a group of friends and liking parts of it, but overall didn't meet my expectations. And you had at seen Rushmore
2: and Royal Bombs by this point. maybe yes. Maybe also – Yeah, uh,
0: correct. And Bottle Rocket. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was – I mean, I was familiar. This is the first thing of his that I had seen in a theater, but I had seen everything up to um, mm-hmm. the Life Aquatic at this point. And it just – it wasn't what I was expecting. It was a little bit different than um, the style of of, you know, like – particularly Rushmore and Royal Tenenbaums are so sort of meticulous and this is a little more frenetic and broken in so many ways and we'll get into that, but it, it kind of, it had moments that I enjoyed, but I also, I just wasn't really sure about it. Um, and then I didn't see it again for, I don't know, probably a couple years, uh, which is a long time for me to go between Wes Anderson viewings, uh, to be perfectly honest and uh a friend came over this is in college uh or a couple friends came over and smuggled some uh alcohol over uh to my room at my parents' house and we sipped some alcohol and watched life aquatic again and it was hilarious we had a great time and it was i mean i'm sure the booze had something to do with kind of lubricating that, but it also like was a part of, it was, it was sort of, I guess this movie to me, um, it was a little bit like a Coen brothers film, uh, where there's a lot of Coen brothers films where, you know, at the end of, of walking out the the very end for the first time, I'm kind of like, well, I have feelings about it, but I don't really know how it all sits. And then after sitting with it for a while, it all sort of, Uh, comes together. And so it has become, um, one that I go back to again and again. It's sort of a happy place movie for me, even as sort of melancholy and dark as, and toxic as it can be, um, at times. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it's coming into it this time. I was thinking and I was like, yeah, this is probably top, like three funniest films for Wes. Um, and there's, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of memorable moments, but that's, uh, that's kind of where I, where I was coming in. I was excited to see it again. I was excited because it's been maybe a year or two since I'd, I'd last seen it.
2: Um, and, uh, excited to to dive in and talk about it. So, so with the Coen brothers thing, you're basically saying that this movie's a way Homer. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. That's right. But the problem is that I'm
0: already at home.
3: Steve, what produces this effect of illumination? Is there a chemical inside the organism? No, Ned. Actually, it's the reflection of the moonlight on their outer membranes. That's a very good uh, ad lib. Klaus, come over here and get a two-shot of me and Ned. Ned, come in here. Would you like to join my crew? Would I like to? I want you on Team Zizou. I don't think I can do that. Why not? Well, it's not my field. I don't have the background for it. No one here does. Klaus used to be a bus driver. Darsky was a high school substitute teacher. We're a pack of strays, don't you get it? See, I'm not even that strong a swimmer. The answer's yes. Well, it's got to be. Already a red cap and a speedo. Cut. Klaus, why aren't you rolling? Could I have a word with you, please? Why aren't you a... getting this? That was a goddamn tearjerker. Why did you cut it, man? Because the sound is going to be shit. He doesn't even know how to hold a boom. He doesn't know deadly check about what we do. Don't cut unless I say. I've never seen so many electric jellyfish in all my life. Those
0: are the yet Kong man of wars. All right, guys. So I guess for the uninitiated, the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, it's the story of a somewhat washed up uh, Jacques Cousteau-esque marine life adventure film, documentary filmmaker, I guess. Like Wes's career and his co-writer, Noah Bombeck, who I think will probably give a little credit to in this discussion, I imagine as well. Um, They kind of craft this world where what if like people who make Jacques Cousteau like films are actually sort of big stars in their own little, little world. And so uh, the movie opens on Steve premiering part one of this new adventure that, uh, uh, that he's filmed and he's, we find out that he's just lost his, best friend Esteban uh to a jaguar shark or what he claims is a jaguar shark um no one saw it Steve is known to be a bit of a um he 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 can inflate the truth he can invent the truth uh quite a bit so uh he sets off on basically to do part 2 and find hunt down and kill the shark for revenge and so the the whole film is sort of his uh, quest to hunt down this Jaguar shark and and kill it because it devoured his best friend um, also Jeff Goldblum is his adversary um, and uh, it's complicated between him and his wife and little love triangle thing he's also got a son who may or may not be his uh, that shows up his name's Ned he uh, played by Owen Wilson he's from Kentucky what do you guys think of Ned
2: he was. I forgot he's supposed to be from Kentucky. Yeah, Eric Kentucky. that accent sounded like it was from
1: Mars. <laughs>
2: I, I would just make him from from Texas and let him talk like he talks.
1: I like Owen Wilson, um, and I do like him in this movie. But that accent is to say it's a hurdle is generous. It would um, be
2: like casting John Wayne to play Genghis Khan. It's just not something you need to do.
0: But I don't think he's trying to in any way cast him to be a legitimate, you know, he's not supposed to sound like he's from Kentucky. He's supposed to sound like some mix of like Foghorn Leghorn and um, very earnest community theater.
1: Yeah, I think this is probably the accent that Daniel Craig used as reference for uh, (laughs) Benoit Blanc. (laughs) Um, But I do – that accent is – I don't know, it's 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 a strange accent and I think, you know, Owen Wilson's got a lot of strengths as an actor. Accents are certainly not one of them. Um Just the one accent, really. Yeah. His own. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he's ever tried an accent again, but um I I do think uh Wilson is quite good in this. Um and I think for the most part the cast is quite good. Um I don't think you know, my problems with the film aren't Or anyone in this cast, I don't think. Um, And there's some, you know, Willem Dafoe is about as strange of a character as you can think of. Um, (laughs) And it's, you know, everyone's in this, you know, very, very heightened Wes Anderson world. And I'd say it's maybe his most heightened film um, to date.
0: I think it's probably his Mm -hmm. most blended in a way that – I mean, because – This is the first time that we see him using stop motion, but he's using it in a different way than he later does in something like uh, Moonrise Kingdom or Grand Budapest, where like he's using it in in a way that's sort of and then we cut to a wide and it's stop motion. But this is like
2: he builds the world.
0: With the stop motion, you know, fish and seahorse and all the, the
2: yeah, I, I took that and to be in, like instilling wonder into the world.
0: It's almost a Pee Wee's Playhouse sort of, sort of thing. So I think you're right, Peterson. Like it is probably the most out there as far as removed from reality of of any of his films.
2: Wes Anderson has this crazy trick that he can pull off of having these little dollhouse worlds, and but have characters feel. Very real and very fake at the same time. Or very real and very, um, I, I don't know, dry, I guess. But it's its not a type of character that you normally see on screen, so it doesn't feel like acting as much as you, you picture, like, capital A acting, Oscars, things like that. But the characters still manage to feel uh, like real, full people, especially a character like Willem Dafoe, who maybe has ten lines tops.
0: I uh, think it, he is it, more than that, but yeah. I mean, I I think – it's it's a matter of he has emotional truth with his characters, mm-hmm. even though everything else is a facade. And he's not trying to hide it behind anything either. He's mm-hmm. saying, like, this is fake, but that's okay. Um, look at, I mean, literally by saying, here is my boat, and showing us a cross-section of the boat and floating God. through it, like, he's completely ripping apart like there is no man behind the curtain he's showing us the man behind the curtain and it's a really i don't know it's a hefty film because steve is a really bitter character he could be on the cover of male toxic masculinity monthly like he's he's really a fucked up character with a lot of issues with you know relationships and gender and uh, fatherhood and and basically everything, anything that's even like his seafaring adventures. He's not that great at being, you know, it seems as though Eleanor is the brains of the entire operation as they suggest again and again. Um, so he's, he's really, he's almost an anti-hero character. Then you've got someone like Ned or Kingsley um, who is really, he is sort of your typical Wes Anderson, Um, downward dog, sad sack, you know, like the, the Luke Wilson character of, um, Bottle Rocket or, uh, Royal Tenenbaums. And so I I don't know, he's dealing in a world that is a little bit darker, I think, than, than what he had explored before. And I think that is a barrier to entry a little bit. I also think, um... That's got to be in part uh, related to this collaboration with uh, Noah Bombeck. Yeah, I yeah. feel so much Bombeck in um, not just the... Like, there are definitely Bombeck jokes in this that I I love. They're caustic, but they're hilarious, which is, you know, most of Bombek's sort of career. He's softened a little bit uh, over the like, past... Like,
2: what, what's one that you feel...
0: I mean there's there's a lot of stuff that comes out of Issu's mouth. I mean and I think because he is a Bombek style character mm-hmm. uh for the most part I think by the end he softens into an Anderson character um mm-hmm. but I mean just a lot of things a lot of things that he says to Jane he's very confrontational like uh he you you really think it's smart idea to hit the sauce while you got a bun in the oven which just like he Bombek has a way of crafting lines where it's like he uses so few words to have so much impact that just like stabs a knife in and twists it mm-hmm. and it's i mean it's kind of it's perfect for for a guy like zisu um but it's also not always the most fun uh either
2: yeah and and how is this movie um advertised? was it like the f- the funniest uh, comedy of the summer, or something like that.
1: The difference now is you can sell an Anderson film on being an Anderson film. Yes, here it was the well, nobody knows what this is yet. How, how are we gonna get people in the theater? Um, because this isn't a cheap movie. I mean, this thing made or this thing was uh cost 50 million dollars.
0: Yeah, uh, his, his most expensive movie to date. And still his most expensive movie, I believe.
1: It didn't make it back. I mean, it only made $34 million worldwide. This thing lost a lot of money, um, which, you know, not that Wes Anderson movies are ever going to be your most profitable, but, you know, I I think some of the hurdles for this movie for me stem really from – and it's not the caustic nature of it because I think there's some really – I think, beautifully written and beautifully played moments, you know. And everything kind of ship exterior, I think, works really well. I think when they're inside the caverns of the ship, it feels a little, you know, you can feel them playing like make-believe almost. Whereas mm-hmm. when they're outside of the ship or they're in these less stylized moments, that facade comes way a little bit. And I think – I think that is something Anderson's playing with.
3: In 12 years, he'll be 11 and a half. That was my favorite age.
1: To me, that's such a great line. It's something, you know, I you know, kind of contract myself a little bit there, but I think that the whole submarine sequence really works. Um, something about that keeps the reality for some reason, whereas I think so much of it you get lost and it does feel almost like, you know, see next to me, New York and all these different things happening in all these rooms. And I don't know. It's, and there's so much plot here. I mean, there's just so much happening. And I think you could lose 30 minutes of plot and change it for 30 minutes of character. And then you've got a better film.
0: Honestly, I don't think there's a whole lot. I, 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 I see what you're saying and I'm not, you know, but I don't think there's a whole lot of plot it's not it's not really convoluted plot though it's pretty straightforward of just like adventure or road film sort of setup where it's like here's our mission and then run into all the you know things run afoul along the way
2: and and that's funny because I would have liked to have seen another thirty minutes of this i'm on I'm on the other side because I felt like we did a lot of working and building to get to the ship and there were a lot of characters there and we fully fleshed out three four five of them maybe but we didn't go as deep as i would have liked it uh and i would have liked to see more but part of that's because i bought into it and i enjoyed it and i liked what i saw but i felt like we went uh from boat to um uh, i guess pirates really quick we went from like it just felt a little and i'm not saying rush because that's not it but But I enjoyed the adventure part of it. And I would have liked to have seen more of that road film type once they got on the water.
0: Peterson, do you have issue with this film stylistically sort of jumps around a lot? Not just in like things that are, you know, he's shooting in these incredible locations and then jumping into um, obvious sets, you know, juxtaposed back and forth. Um, not so much that, but like, there's, there's a lot of jumping around in style of the, the filmmaking between, um, even like, I mean, a good example is when the pirates attack and the like pirates come in and the screen or the, the image literally goes like a, I don't know, a bleachy blue almost during Mm -hmm. that whole action scene. And then on a cut, um, on a a hard cut, it all suddenly goes back to a more Wes Anderson warm tone, which actually we haven't seen a whole lot of in the film up until this point. Um, Before that, before the, the pirate attack, a lot of the color has been more like this oversaturated, you know, between going for the 16 millimeter thing with the, the uh, uh, sort of documentary footage or just stuff that's very clean and, and saturated and jumping around. I guess the, the question that I'm trying to get to is, is that a barrier for you in just, I mean, he's, he's definitely saying, okay, we're going to stylize this to here in a very specific way, but then we're going to, in this section, totally turn it around and do something completely different. And then in this section, like he's really like diced it up to where there's not a continuity flow. Like there, there's a violence in a way to the, the way this entire film is constructed and the way from scene to scene things. Like if, if you're not on board, I could see it being whiplash. Is that what, what you're reacting to?
1: No, see, I think it, it doesn't quite, have the elegance of something like the Grand Budapest Hotel, which that movie jumps styles every couple of minutes. Um, And I think for me, you know, those things, they add some texture to it and that a little kind of, I don't know, spice to the film that wouldn't quite be there. And I don't know if it's a hindrance to me, but it's one of those things it's either going to work for you or it's, or it's not. I mean, it's, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I don't hate it, but I just I don't think it necessarily needs to be there. And I, you know, I usually love watching a director kind of flex those muscles. Um, and maybe because I, I do think this movie kind of leaves you adrift uh, if you're not on its wavelength. And I think you know, for me, it, it loses me relatively early. Even though I come back uh, to some scenes and I come back to some moments. Um, As a whole, I just – I don't think it ever really congeals. I don't think it ever really comes together as a full film. Um, I think it's – and maybe that is – it's the first time uh, Noah Baumbach and uh, Wes Anderson work together. Mm -hmm. And that could be it. Um,
0: I mean, to me, it – honestly, I think that is – it's a feature, not a bug of this film.
1: What I think that the tonal shifts of the of the scenes that it could be a scene that I think is working so well emotionally, and the next scene pulls me out emotionally in ways that okay I think whiplashes me in that way. You know, I think uh, a lot of the scenes with Ned and Jane, uh, basically Owen Wilson and Cate um, Blanchett, I think work really effectively, and I think most of the Bill Murray and Cate Blanchett uh, scenes work really effectively as well, but. You know, then you add in Klaus, which is the Defoe character. I think is doing what he's asked to do, and I think is doing it really well. But he's in a, a different movie. Um, same thing, Jeff Goldblum, who he what you know he was born on a Wes Anderson set, um, <laughs> so he's not kind of out of step with anybody. He's just – I think he's in a different Wes Anderson movie. I just think this movie has competing ideas that don't ever pull it in. And I think part of that is in the characters.
2: One of the reasons I would like to see 30 more minutes of this movie is something that I remembered this time I watched it that I hadn't remembered the last couple times. Which is I do feel like some things are either missing that would adhere a lot of the movie together. um, And it could be that whiplash that you're talking about, Chris, or the way that things jump around. But this movie never looks better to me than the day after I watch it. The day after I watch this movie. And from there, my mind sits on it and I glue everything back together and I say that was a damn good movie. But I don't start feeling real good momentum from it until two-thirds of the way in. Like it's it's little really? pieces Yeah, yeah. It's little pieces that are that are that are stuck together. And I'm in I'm enjoying it. I like it. I like what I'm seeing, but I don't feel um, the emotional connection that I probably should until, uh, I don't know, the mutiny, something along those lines. That's probably where it really picks up for me. And and with that, I think more and, and kind of ex- expanding on the characters or expanding on the relationship between people or a few more scenes between each of the main characters might push that over the edge. But at the end of the day, I love the ideas that it plays with. I love... The character, I love Steve Zisu. I, I like the um, the space that Wes Anderson's playing in and the overall message and what I take away from it. But I didn't really enjoy this the way I do other ones until much, much deeper into this one.
1: I think one of the things that strikes me with this movie is a little bit not sure of the tone it really wants to strike is that this is, let's see, Royal Ten of Bombs, and then there's this, and then Dursling Limited. All of those have a suicide in them in some way or a suicide attempt. Um, and, you know, Ned's mom commits suicide because she has cancer. And I don't know if she really needed to, I don't know the quite the point of adding that layer. I think her dying of cancer is enough to spur Ned to go find his potential father. Um, and it's, it's just a, another layer that I don't know if it really needed to be there. Um, and it's just where Wes Anderson and Bombach could have stopped with one thing. They add one extra thing at every turn of this movie.
0: I don't disagree with anything that you guys are saying in particular, and it's not, it's, I don't think it's even a situation of like, Oh, I feel like we saw different movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's more like the, the, like Jake, I think you're you're absolutely right. In while the emotional kind of arcs of these characters and all mm-hmm. of that is there, it's not it's not as prevalent as particularly Rushmore and Royal mm-hmm. Tenenbaums. Um, which I mean, I think in those two films, those are his kind of sharpest tools, and to me in this one, he's, he's sort of exploring something else and mm-hmm. and it's something else that it feels a little bit out of his comfort zone and it feels a little bit, um, you know, trying to maybe find his boundaries and maybe, maybe he did find his boundaries because like we said, he never goes on to make another movie of this scale again at this budget or, um, anything like that. He, he kind of reins it all in, um, more or less after this, and and has continued to work within kind of the confines of what he's able to do. He's never tried to make another adventure film, but for me, the thing that I f- just absolutely love about about this film is the differences. Is the like to me the first you know like I don't know half hour to to our Mm -hmm. is just exhilarating not because we are getting the same sort of things that that we've grown to uh, love about Anderson but Mm -hmm. because he's trying different stuff and he's you know Jake in uh when we were talking up at the top you you mentioned like French New Wave as an influence Mm -hmm. And, and I think you really feel that and and maybe I feel it more as an editor because like I'm just Constantly thinking about, okay, how is that constructed? How is that pieced together? I feel so much of that in just the way that he's bashing things together and that whiplash that I mentioned earlier, the violence of like, that's a thing that I actually really love here because um, he's he can so elegantly build a world. And he's proven it time and time again, both before and after this. I like to see him get a little bit messy and a little bit... I mean, he's constantly messing with jump cuts, mm-hmm. at least from the opening when Steve gets into the fight with the guy who mm-hmm. uh, asks him, who are you going to kill next? Like, um they're very early on sort of establishing this cinematic grammar of, okay, things are a little messy and they're a little off kilter. And so that's the, like... The thing that kind of sucks me into um to this one at least as much as as the characters, but at the same time, I totally understand like it's more of a style over substance in a way um so you could i can totally understand the well it feels more like an exercise and but where are the characters' um argument as as well i I just i don't know i I appreciate the fact that. It goes, it goes in different directions, and but also doesn't totally fall apart.
2: I'm I'm glad you brought that back up. By the way, the next day after this, I had to watch. Not had to watch. I I could not help myself but watch some French New Wave because it was stuck in my brain after watching this one, and and seeing you know the the cinematic grammar that Truffaut uses, and then to come back to this, it starts to make this movie, like I said, in my head, be so much more meaningful and and uh excellent than it is when i'm watching it yeah. and it means that i probably need to rewatch this another dozen times to get to get what i i should be getting out of it anderson clearly has huge ideas here he he clearly is building a very delicate and intricate character to put in a comedic adventure film he's got a a broken man grieving losing his best friend and his wife and finding his estranged son and building that out over the course of an adventure film is really tough. And I think he basically lands it. I think it's, he, he brings it in. It's good. But, um, but it is with a, a different energy than other Wes Anderson films and a different energy than other films in general. And so it's a, it's a, it's a bit more challenging. Did
0: either of you guys watch the Albert Mazel's doc that's on, um, the Criterion disc Mm-mm. of this, I think it's no. I think it's called Life as an Adventure, something to that. And it's there's there's also a Maisel's doc on Royal Tenenbaums, which is if you've seen that, this is similar, where mm-hmm. it's very loose, no, like you know, it's it's more the verite, just sort of mm-hmm. being around, watching things happen, and um, uh, that sort of thing. But there's a moment where they're, uh, it, it looks like they're probably in pre-production. And I think Anderson's talking to Murray and he says, I wonder if this will feel like a James Bond movie at the end of the day.
1: <laughs> and, <laughs> and,
0: and like, I love that, that moment because, and he said in interviews time and time again, uh, particularly after this film, you know, like I've, I tried to make other movies. I try to make movies like other filmmakers or like other genres, but I find that, Ultimately, I can only make my movies, um, and and I think this is that's another thing that I, I appreciate about this is it is a interesting like okay if Wes Anderson did try to I think Romancing the Stone is a, another film that he kind of compares um, to as far as like action and comedy adventure thing um, he's just incapable of doing anything that's not completely him, but it's also kind of cool to see him try to do that and then pull it into his his world. I mean it's very much to I guess continue to circle back to the French New Wave thing, it's very much like Breathless being a mm-hmm. attempt at a noir, but so much through the lens of French New Wave and what these filmmakers, you know, what Godard and Truffaut Uh, had consumed but then what they were spitting out and how they knew how to make film that um, it doesn't feel like a noir at all it feels like a french new wave film and you can only like when diving in get down to realizing like oh you were you were trying to make this other thing but it it transformed into something completely different and that's okay like even even if it's a little weird I
2: wish more filmmakers were like that. Wes Anderson cannot help but make the Wes Anderson movie. Yeah. And so many filmmakers don't have their own distinct voice or they're able to silence that voice and fit directly into genre, which is not a thing that Wes Anderson knows how to do. And I'm glad he doesn't because he doesn't mute that, that thing that makes him unique. And that is so hard to find in other filmmakers. There's, uh, I, I don't know if there's ten filmmakers who who I could say the same thing about. Not even just acting today, but of the last fifty years. Yeah, it, it's such a such a rare, distinct thing to find. And that's the best part of that. When you think of this as Bond filtered through, you know, Wes Anderson, <laughs> yeah, it it, it becomes uh, essentially like the the Wes Anderson Spider Man if you've seen that. I forget if it was SNL. Yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah it's it, like, I, I get that. I, I understand that m- the most from this movie. Not so much from Rushmore, not so much for Royal Ten or anything after, but this is the movie that is the most Wes Anderson Spider-Man. The most Wes Anderson of the Wes Anderson movies, even though I don't think it is the best one. Because it, it has that voice so clearly out in front and that style so clearly out in front.
1: Don't get me wrong here. I I don't want to see Wes Anderson stop making Wes Anderson movies. You know, that's not what I want to see. I would absolutely, without thinking about it twice, I'd rather give, you know, Wes Anderson 10 movies um, and take away 10 Marvel movies. Or 20 or 30 Marvel movies. You know, take those away. Give it to Wes Anderson.
0: Shit, you take away you know, one Marvel movie and you can make –
1: well, yeah. A dozen yeah. Wes
0: Anderson
2: movies.
1: Um, and, and I like those Marvel movies just fine. But, yeah, you know, there's no – there's real, really no life to them. Um, yeah. Even the ones I think are really good. You know, there's definitely a samey, samey quality to them. And, yes, there's a samey quality to the style of Wes Anderson films. But they all do have their own beating hearts to them. And this, to me, feels like a filmmaker – really stepping out with a budget experimenting with all the toys that he has on display now and kind of understanding where he can bend where he breaks and yeah i think he you know i think he becomes a stronger filmmaker from this even if i don't love this movie i think he learns a lot here and i think the moments here that really work uh really work and you know there's moments that i think are just they're miscalculated uh, for – to meet a kind of a, a true emotional core that you want to see in this movie. You know, and I, I get the comparisons to people like Truffaut and, you know, Truffaut making a noir is only Truffaut knew how to. Um, but I do think, you know, this is an adventure film that has almost no adventure – <laughs> and the adventure plot seems <laughs> tacked onto it but, by by complete happenstance. Like, you know, you take the pirate element out of this movie and I, I, I don't think you lose anything. And I don't think you lose anything. I, I'd rather sit on that ship and watch them just hang out and talk for 30 minutes rather than go to, you know, whatever island it was.
0: The Ping Islands.
1: Uh, the Ping Islands, <laughs> yeah. Um, and – I'd much rather see them sit on the ship and talk and kind of joke around and...
2: You just want a Wes Anderson, Robert Altman boat movie.
1: Kind of. I mean, because to me, the best parts of this movie are when they are all hanging out, talking. Um, you know, the cuddle time and the pillow talk between Owen Wilson and Kate Blanchett, the um, rivalry between Owen Wilson and uh, Bill Murray, the banter between Bill Murray and Kate Blanchett, like those scenes are like so well written and performed. And then you sacrifice so much of it for, oh, now we're going to raid Jeff Goldblum's ship. Now we're going to raid the Ping Islands.
2: And that's why I think either the cast is too big or the movie's too short. Because we don't – all the characters that are there do flesh out the world, but I wish we had more from them or less things to look at and more time focus on those main, main characters. Yeah,
1: I mean, I wonder if you take away Klaus, Klaus Timler, if you take away the Willem Dafoe character and you replace that with just a, a, a nobody actor, it's less distracting and you're not thinking about it being Willem Dafoe. Same thing, if, if you take away Jeff Goldblum, I think, and put him with a nobody actor, you're not thinking the whole time, well, that's Jeff Goldblum, that's Willem Dafoe. Like, I think taking the stars out of this, I think it would make it a little bit more coherent, cohesive. And I think he uses those people better and lets them disappear a little bit more in his later films.
0: Yeah, but I don't think it's about disappearing in this one. It's it's about being big and broad. And I mean, to like the, uh, the pirate scene, my favorite thing in the first viewing was – the fight with the pirates, both both gunfights, the, the mm-hmm. one on the ship and the one uh, at mm-hmm. the hotel, because they're so absurd. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, of course, this is the way Wes Anderson is going to stage action. Like, he's not even going to attempt to feign that he can do Michael Bay. He's just going to do like it's, you know, Steve with a handgun going up against a half dozen pirates with machine guns and and not even taking cover and he comes out (laughs) fine. He happens to kill one of them. Like it is absurd and, and it's, you know, fully, I, I feel like he's fully like comfortable uh, with, you know, saying, okay, this is totally who I am and this is what my limitations are. And I'm going to use those as, uh, as rules and as, you know, lean into them rather than shy away from them. And, and like, I get, like, I totally get what you're saying. Like, it's just, you know, a, it's a Goldilocks thing of, I kind of think this is, just about right for for him pushing his boundaries uh and it
1: I think he lets the T steep too long here,
0: yeah
2: yeah look look i i I agree with you, especially when I think about the chaotic energy when they raid the Hennessy Sea lab, yeah of like like I love that that's great it's it's very, very much Wes Anderson, but talking about the big cast and all the characters, there's really too many to focus on everybody, so let's do a quick rundown of all sure. of these characters and what you guys thought of them Ned plimpton. Owen Wilson, uh, I love him and his silly accent.
1: I I love him despite his silly accent.
2: <laughs> I, I love him despite his silly accent. Great, funny, good, good character, and uh, has the same earnestness that Owen Wilson always seems to bring to his characters. Yeah. Uh, what, what what about uh, Jane? Kate Blanchett.
0: So good. I mean, it's Kate Blanchett, so she's so good yeah. and everything, but. Uh, so like, I mean, I think, and I think the women of this movie in general, Jane, Eleanor, and the script supervisor Anne Marie, like, mm-hmm. they are constantly putting Steve in his place, and that is what prevents this movie from being like a toxic masculinity jerk fest. Like, ultimately, they have the upper they call hand. Them on their or they are the intellectually more you know, sophisticated at at every turn, you know, Anne Marie saying we can't go into troubled waters. Uh Eleanor being the one who shows up to save the day so that they can go get the Bond stooge. Uh Jane just being an incredible journalist and putting up with his shit despite the advances and everything, like uh yeah, Cape Blanchett's great.
2: But everybody else is a pack of strays. They're just they're yeah. just guys playing sailor on a boat. Yeah. But yeah, Kate Blanchett's great. I think she she does a fantastic job. Yes, yeah,
1: she's speed. wonderful in this. Yeah, she's wonderful in this. I you know I don't know if they've ever not liked Blanchett though. Yeah,
2: yeah, and I, I feel about the same way about Angelica Houston. So Eleanor Zee, yep, I think, same. just just steals the scene every time she's on screen. And
1: and I don't think the individual performers are the problem. I think I think all of them do really well, and it it's it's not the scenes by themselves. It is the. Puzzle piece of putting these scenes together, I think, is more my issue, if that makes sense. Like, all of these individual moments, I think, work on themselves. And I could watch clips of this movie and find humor in them. It's when you add them up to this hole that it just doesn't fit the way I think it really should.
0: So do you think the kind of emotional arc that it's going for with the climax with the Jaguar shark – are you not on board there or is it more just spotty in the journey to that
1: i think it's spotty in the journey cuz i do think okay. when it gets to the actual moment of the jaguar shark it is i think really emotional yeah and really cathartic and really beautiful I, you know that is a really great couple of minutes where they're tracking down they finally see it and it's this you know very cathartic moment for everyone
0: I don't know how I had never noticed this before, uh, probably because I'm a bad movie movie viewer. Uh, but there's, there's a really just great mirror of Steve. I think the first time we see his face in, in the film, um, and then that moment on the, in the submarine where he's just looking, um, you know first we the the first time we see him at least in sort of a close up in the film proper uh he's in the balcony and he's watching just after Esteban has been eaten, and he's just looking mournful and then we have basically the exact same sort of framing and look on his face when he mm-hmm. sees the Jaguar shark,
2: except that time he has a family behind him to reach in right and yeah, right,
0: and it's just like that juxtaposition works so so well and it's so simple and elegant and and it you know ultimately i think you know to to use a Rós song in a big climactic element is sort of in general cheating
1: well especially now it is this is 16 years ago though it's not quite as big of a well cheat i
0: that. i just i just mean because the music just yeah. does so much heavy lifting but well, this is a rare occasion where I, I feel like he earns the ability to to throw that song in. It, it just – and it pairs so beautifully.
2: And, and speaking of music, do we want to talk about uh, Sue George? I'd love to talk about him
0: and and Mother's Ba. I mean, this will be our last opportunity to talk about Mother's Ba, who scored everything up until here, but um, he uh, is no
2: longer – he hasn't worked with him since. I actually didn't love the Mother's Ball music in this one. You I
1: didn't? I, I I dislike the Ping Island Mother's Ball stuff. No. I like I like everything else. And I don't think – I think it is uh, – I feel like the that little Ping Island ditty kind of pulls you out of it. I think it pulls you out of it so fast oh. in a way that I don't think he's really intending. And I think it's it's hipster – Early metrosexual 2000 stuff that.
0: What are you talking yeah, about? Yeah, it just,
1: it pulls you right out. I, no. I, you know.
0: I totally, I like wholeheartedly disagree, especially. I love
2: the music. It's, I don't, I, I think it takes me out of it a little bit as well because when I hear it, it's a little too twee and I love, I love twee, but it's a little too twee and a little too much. Oh, look, it's Mark Mothersbaugh.
1: In, yeah, in that's, my brain. that's my, that is absolutely what I believe.
2: It
0: probably is the most. Mark Mothersbaugh in style of anything that he's, he's done, yeah. but that's very intense. I mean, it's once again, he's doing this thing where ostensibly all of that stuff is Wala score for the Zisu films. And so like the Ping Island theme, you hear early on as sort of like this, just um, when,
1: they're, when they're about to go do like, a dive or something, right?
0: Yeah, you, he he plays it at some point. So you just you just hear a little riff of it as as a you know crappy keyboard synth thing, and then whenever we actually get it on, uh, when they they come onto the island, it's actually like a full orchestra playing it, um, and so it's this. And you guys know how much I love sort of mixing diegetic and non-diegetic. Mm-hmm. It it feels like this way of blending in the two parts, like mm-hmm. our viewer world with their inner world, in a way. Um, I I really like this. I mean the the fact that you point out the Ping Island score in particular, Peterson. Like <laughs> that's been that's been my ringtone for probably <laughs> at least a, the past decade. Um, I love. Well,
1: I love. That, that song I like time. it as a ringtone. <laughs> and I like it. Is like I, I like I enjoy listening to that like on its own. But yeah. I don't know something about. And I think it's one element of of layer this movie just doesn't need. And, you know, it's like it's like the cakes they make in the uh, Budapest Hotel, and it's layers upon layers and frosting and frosting and frosting. And They're those perfectly composed um, cakes, and then if you had too much frosting, though, it caves in on itself.
0: Uh, agree to disagree i suppose i
2: but i bet we all agree on sue george oh yeah i i do great amazing
1: i like all of them um i do have the question of kind of like why why in portuguese you know why why that but it doesn't bother me um i do love all the covers and I think they fit the tone of the movie. Those fit the tone of the movie. That's that's the important
2: well. part. Without yeah. without being the actual Bowie lyrics to compete with your your brain space, I think is is why they do that.
1: Yeah, that's probably that's a good.
2: Well, I mean, I think it's
0: also they're like we've said they're a pack of strays. He's mm-hmm. just happens to be, you know, he's the crew member from Brazil. Like simple as that. Mm-hmm. I don't think it needs yeah. more. you yeah, know. Yeah. And so he's in his off time. He's Playing Bowie songs. That's what he does.
2: We still have not talked about the best or biggest performance in this film. The great Bud Court. <laughs> He's so good in this. As the Bond Company stooge. Please tell me. Good.
0: Okay. He's so good in this. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and
0: I mean, this is the very first thing I ever saw Bud Court in. I I had not yet seen Harold and Harold Maude. And Maude. Um, I'd I, seen Harold
1: and Maude for this. Really? Yeah.
0: Um, and so I, I was totally unaware of maybe, no, I don't think I'd seen heat yet either. Um, uh, but just totally, totally unaware of him as an actor. And so like with this being the first thing that I saw him in, I didn't realize just how good he was perhaps as a comedic actor.
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: but having more, you know, Having seen Harold Ma and Brewster McCloud, and him and other stuff, like he is so good in this. He he brings yeah. exactly the right. Like he is a perfect Wes Anderson actor, and I wish mm-hmm. he would be in more of his stuff because he just fits in. He slots in so well.
2: Yeah, I wish he would have been uh, like the assistant in Darjeeling Limited um, with the mm-hmm. alopecia. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think I think he would have been a great fit for those. I don't know why he hasn't worked with them again. But I, I would love to see him in a, in a major role or a bigger
1: role. You know, to me, the, the Bob Balaban character in Moonrise Kingdom, that that's your Bud Corp. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, Balaban just fits that tone a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and
0: he's perfect for that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think Bud Corp's really good in this. Um, you know, and he has what, like three, four scenes? He did not have a lot of scenes. I mean, he's
2: – No, but he's great every time he shows up.
1: Yeah. Um, But we haven't talked really about Mr. Murray
0: which is i mean this is his starring you know everyone thinks of him and wes anderson you know they go together but this is this is the only film that he stars in as the the main character uh i think he's really good i think he brings a lot of range to to this character and kind of i think he also brings a lot of vulnerability
1: yeah i so i i, I love him in this i think he's quite good um this is a really strong couple of years for Bill Murray. Uh, the year before this, he was in lost in translation. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously in 2004, he is in this 2005, he's in broken flowers. Like he's, Mm -hmm. this is a very strong couple of years for him. Um, I do think it's, it's great to see him in this, uh, mode. Um, don't forget, uh, Garfield was in 2004 as well. Um, but this is I, – I think he's – this is what he can do so well. And I think he can bring gravitas to these small little moments without even really trying. He, he doesn't play his hand as an actor ever in this. Yeah. And I think it's, it's really impressive how he can kind of dismantle this dialogue and get exactly to the heart of it without showing you.
2: I'll tell you the – what I think is just the genius of Bill Murray in, in one line is when uh, I forget who walks back up uh, uh, his, his manager, whoever it was right after uh, Steve Zissou meets Ned for the first time. And, and Steve goes to smoke a joint on the front of the boat and comes back. He's like, "This Ned. He's probably my son. Like, like I love that line. It's great. It's funny. Uh, but it's almost played as a joke with Bill Murray, but delivered really well. And then by the end of the movie, you see that he pretty much knew about him the whole time. So it wasn't as much just a, a joke or a throwaway. It was more of a character development as well. And it's all of those wrapped into one. But Bill Murray still Bill Murray. He still delivers it with perfect timing and perfect intonation. He's a fantastic actor.
1: Well, and Michael Gambon is really good in that scene. Too. Yeah, so All the good. scenes. But well, I think one thing that Murray does really well in this movie is he never lets you in on exactly – how kind of bad of a guy he really is Mm -hmm. and he slowly just starts to add layer upon layer i mean you can see he is depressed and in a massive funk and obviously his film career is over if he ever really had like an actual serious one um at some point it seemed like he did and then obviously he's now a kind of a washed up director who can't really get what he wants out of um the movies anymore and i think his fame kind of has gone to him and i think murray is so good at portraying that and it's just this deep deep sadness to him
3: oh shit swamp leeches everybody check for swamp leeches and pull them off nobody else got hit i'm the only one what's the deal
0: All right, boys, it's time for the funniest moments segment. Uh, And I guess I should say this movie on upon this rewatch, not the funniest Wes Anderson movie still has a lot of like a lot of quotable lines, a lot of memorable moments. Um, It's pretty dry. It's just it's not the in my mind. It was more of a laugh riot. It's it's a lot more dour than than I remembered.
1: That's. That's the Bombeck coming out, though.
0: It is, for sure. And, and, but that's the thing. Like Bombek makes me laugh a lot, but also in a different way than Anderson does. But I'm interested. What do you guys have to bring uh, to this one today? Uh, who wants to go first?
2: I think when I watched this in high school, I laughed a good bit at sort of the absurdity of the entire thing, which mm-hmm. is not something that really struck me this time. This time, I've, I was more empathetic for Steve and then yes. a little more judgmental as well mm-hmm. uh, than I was before and saw him more as a broken man so it wasn't as much these absurd things that I had, had had taken in as you know as a younger person I guess but there's still a ton of things to laugh at here I think my favorite line and it was tough to choose is when they are coming off the Ping Island raid
3: Wolodarski well, go get the keys to that fishing boat and throw them in the water no wait they might have another side just blow it up
2: Love that. Love that. <laughs> Hilarious and perfect Wes Anderson.
0: Well, and that's actually kind of a plot point, because once they finally find the Jaguar shark, they've run out of dynamite because they've been just using dynamite recklessly <laughs> everywhere.
2: <laughs> Blow it up. <laughs> and like
0: the first thing that he he decides whenever they get the the money from, uh, from Ned is, well, we're still going to get dynamite. That's... <laughs> Like, that's one of the stipulated, like, Steve will not budge on getting dynamite.
2: I also love the sight gag, because there's a few good sight gags here, but none of them are better than the safe opening up and Ned sticking his head in the back of the safe.
0: Yeah, and a perfectly framed Wes Anderson moment.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So, for me, I think it's the initial pirate raid, and it's one of these weirdly absurd lines where Bill Murray says... Don't point that gun at him. He's an unpaid intern, and it's <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. It is such a crazy line, uh, but it's also a thousand percent what Steve Zissou would say in that moment mm-hmm. because he's he's worried about. Well, sh- if he gets shot, that's probably going to be me getting hit with insurance and. I'm going to go under. The boat's going to be well, gone. And,
2: and also, it's a line that it comes from Steve's worldview and not like a pirate's worldview. Like a pirate cares about an unpaid intern. Yeah. It, it's a self-centered line, just yeah. not even thinking about what someone else would experience the world as.
1: Yeah. So, I, I love that moment. It's, it's, cause it's, it really is. It's so centered upon his selfishness. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a great character moment. But it's also – Very funny. Um, So that's, I think that's one of the funniest.
2: When you said the first pirate raid, I thought it was going to be when Hennessy shows up. They go, ah, throw him over the other side. (laughs) (laughs) That is really
1: good. Um, Or right after the pirate raid, when he says, you know, essentially, if you're not against me, don't cross this line.
3: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Let's
1: do it again.
3: Do you all not like me anymore? I mean... What am I supposed to do? I don't know. Look, if you're not against me, don't cross this line. If yes, do. I love you all. Are you sure? Yes, I am. I don't understand, why? What do you mean? Wait a second, what are we doing? You shouldn't cross the line. If cross the line if you're
1: going to quit.
0: Oh do it again. I was <laughs> Uh for me, I mean I as I'm watching through, you know, knowing okay I'm gonna have to pick something, I'm thinking like, oh yeah, like okay, the gunfight. The gunfight I've always loved. I laughed maniacally at the very first time I saw it. It's like, yeah, this is it. And then you got to think, of, oh no the I'm gonna fight you, Steve. I love the just the way that whole
2: <laughs> i th- um, I think your team's Isu ring caught me on the lip, <laughs>
0: yeah, the way that whole thing plays out is great um <laughs> there's there's a line where uh Klaus says i I always thought of you too as my dad's talking about Steve and um mm-hmm. Esteban a- Esteban uh which is just like a perfectly delivered." uh moment and and again an absurd like it's just an absurd line, absurd world building. Um but it's it's great. But no my, my favorite part, my the funniest part to me, um, it's something that I I actually like I try to incorporate it into conversation every once in a while, but like nobody knows what I'm talking about. Um, but it's it's when uh, they've after they've rescued Hennessy they're on their way back. And they're inside the Belafonte
3: Is this my espresso machine? What what is how, how did you get my espresso machine? Well, uh you fucking stole it, man. <coughs> And just the
0: way that, picked that one the way that he delivers it just so deadpan and so like this is the thing that you're concerned about right now yeah no we stole it like you're not getting it back
2: and also it's a bond company stooge playing like yes exactly yeah.
0: he's his loyalty is clearly to team zisu
2: mm-hmm. it's
0: so you know it's it's this combination of perfect delivery perfect writing perfect like setup of everything. It gets me every time and it like it's one of those lines that I'll just think about randomly some days and start laughing.
2: And the line gives gives the Bond Company Stooge an arc in the movie. Like he's probably this buttoned up guy who's who's like, are are, are we breaking into the, the Hennessy lab? He gets captured by pirates. He gets rescued from him and he's back on the boat. It's like we stole it, man. Yeah. Like it's this whole arc for him in this movie in in literally five lines. He yeah. he does very very little in the movie, and and that that's the great bit of world building that I love.
0: And and Bud Court.
2: And Bud
3: Court. <laughs> <laughs> Bill speaks their
2: language. What are they saying,
3: Billy? Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, apparently they're taking a hostage. Obviously they've chosen Ned. <laughs> Uh, now that they've found out that I speak Filipino, they seem to be changing their
1: mind.
3: Do you have a vault? They want to know if there's a vault. There's no vault. Our vault contains at least 10 different currencies from all over the world at any given moment, and we are prepared for every kind of financial necessity. There goes Ned's inheritance. Tell them if they don't get off my boat right now. There's
0: going to be a major shed storm. All right, guys, now it's time. We got to, we got to pick what shelf we're going to put the life aquatic with Steve Zissou on. Is it for you guys? Anderson, a list at the very tippy top. Is it a deep dive pun intended? I suppose this time, uh, <laughs> I see somebody wrote a note. Why did we not call this deep search?
2: That's
0: that's fair. Um, <laughs>
2: Can we officially rename it? Can we cross out deep dive and write deep search underneath, please? As it should have been from the beginning. Perfect. Uh,
0: Is this, okay, is this an Anderson A-list, a deep search, or is this among Wes's weakest whimsies?
1: I admire some of this, and I think some of it adds up to some pretty emotional kind of cathartic moments. But as a whole, this movie... Never congeals in a way that makes me satisfied almost at all. Um, this is one of the most frustrating Wes Anderson movies to me just because I can see such craft, such skill, uh, such empathy for characters, but also it's such a mess. Like, this is such a mess <laughs> oh, to me. Man. <laughs> um, and it's one of those crazy things. This is – it's hard for me because like in some ways I'd say, well, you know, if you're a big Wes Anderson film, you've seen all of them, you got to see this. But also, if you never saw this, what would do to you? Would you be upset? Maybe, maybe not. Um, I i think for me, this is a West's weakest whimsy. Um, oh. And it's just – I can't reckon the good with the bad here. Like, I just can't do it. I can't cross that bridge and say it really works. Um, I will probably see this movie two or three more times in my lifetime just because I, I, I do – it's a movie I wrestle with. But I I just can't cross that bridge. I can't connect the absurdity – with the empathy, with the kind of crazy, absurd plot here. I just can't make those things come together for me. Um, so, Wes's Weakest Whimsy. Sorry, Wes.
0: For, for the record, we're four Wes movies in, and half of them <laughs> are in Weka's, Wes's Weakest Whimsies for you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, this one's kind of a talk downer. Um, Bottle Rocket kind of was <laughs> – too, though. Man. Um, yeah. Um. I'm
2: telling you, it's not a talk downer, it's a way homer. And <laughs> and and why I say that is because for me, this movie is something I came into thinking was an Anderson A-list because of how I remember the movie being structured and how I the feelings and emotions I get from it. But on this watching, I don't think I can list it with the, on the same tier as a lot of the other things. And I, I don't... I, 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 I love movies that are singular in in their uh, in their vision. I love movies that are singular uh, as opposed to every other movie ever made. I love the the Dangerous Men or the Rules Don't Apply or these mm. weird other things. <laughs> mm. And by every stretch, I should love this movie. But there's other movies where Wes Anderson does the Wes Anderson thing better. And not only that, there's a half dozen Wes Anderson movies that do it better. And so, even though this is very singular. And I think if you're a Wes Anderson fan, it's a must-watch. I can't throw it on the A-list because it's not something that I think is going to win over a Wes Anderson, a new Wes Anderson fan. I don't think it's something that can go out into the broader world like Grand Budapest or Moonrise Kingdom or literally a half dozen of his movies. And so I have to put it in deep search. And it pains me so much to do that. And I may regret it in a week. And I may regret it in a month. And if you ask me again when this is all over where I think it is, it may be different or after another rewatch, but this time I have to file it in deep search and I'm very sorry, Wes.
0: Let me just start off by saying (laughs) that on letterboxed, uh, this movie is a five out of five stars for me. Um, and I actually wrestled with that on this. Uh, I think it was the last watch when I finally bumped it up from four and a half to five. Mm -hmm. And the last one prior to this prior to this, and then this one, um, especially because you know, getting a little more critical and knowing that I have to actually publicly mm-hmm. talk about it, thinking like, "Oh, well, does it belong there? Does it not?" Um, I think. I mean, I think it's sort of a a perfect film in what Wes set out to make, mm-hmm. filtered Agreed. through filtered, that to be true. Filtered agreed. through the Wes Anderson, you know, machine. Um, and so – and and that's how I ultimately came to – it's a five out of five star film. Like, it is – It tried, achieved its intention. Yeah. It achieved its intention totally, which is right in line with A Rules Don't Apply or A Dangerous Men, I think. Yeah.
2: Agreed. And, 100% agreed.
0: Uh, but at the same time, this is – S- second to last, I think mm-hmm. second or third to last on my ranking of Wes Anderson films. Um, just because this is kind of like with P- Peterson with punch Drunk Love, There's just so many strong contenders above it. And ultimately if I'm recommending a Wes Anderson film to someone, it's not going to be at the top of that list. Mm-hmm. So Jake, I'm right with you in putting this in a deep search Not because I personally have any trouble with it, but because I think um, it is more of a like, oh, okay, you've seen – you think you've seen all that Wes Anderson has to offer. You think you understand how he works. This is sort of a deeper cut of, but have you seen him attempt to do something out of his comfort zone and then turn it back in on itself – And become a Wes Anderson movie again. Um, So I I think it's perfectly fitting in Deep Search, not as a pejorative place to put it, but uh, it's, you know, unique and kind of messy and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's also um, if you're just looking for the distilled version of what he's capable of, um, there are other films that are better at displaying that uh, for you. So
2: I'm disappointed in the both of us, Chris. (laughs) Me too.
3: Here's a quote. Wait up. Who from? Zisu has an almost magical connection to the life of the sea. He speaks its language fluently. I've never met a boy like that in all my life. Lord Mandrake. You should have opened with that one. Uh, He was your mentor. Hey, intern,
1: give me a Campari, will you? On the rocks. So, Chris... In our shame of putting these deep dives in West's biggest whimsy, what are we going to be guzzling back with this aquatic adventure?
0: The beer that I'm pairing with Life Aquatic this time, I don't have a great, you know, awesome connection. Like I, I try to form sometimes. I just went shot from the hip, uh, kind of from the gut, what felt right. And which I think is kind of what Steve would have done. Um, I'm pairing Life Aquatic or the Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou with Wee Beastie by Blue Owl Brewing in Austin, Texas. This is a sour Wee Heavy, um, which is also known as a scotch ale, but uh, kind of an odd, a very um, odd style to get a sour in. I've certainly never had another sour scotch ale I don't know if I've even seen another one. This is coming in at 9.3 ABV, which is about average for, uh, for the style 22 IBU. So not a whole lot of bite there. It has the characteristics that you would expect of a wee heavy, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of smoky and peaty and you, the, the booziness is definitely present. Um, but then there's this weird mild sour kick buried deep into the flavor that initially um, it almost comes as like an aftertaste, and it's like, did I did I even did I taste that? Did I taste that wrong? Uh, but has this nice like it's and, and so this is kind of why I'm putting it with Life Aquatic, like it doesn't fit the style of a wee heavy. But it's not completely wrong either. Like, And it's a, it's a beer that um, I really enjoy whenever I have it because it's sort of a full cycle beer, I guess. It's one of those where you get an initial kind of flavor profile up at the top. You get something else as it sits, sits there. And then once it's gone, um, you have even something completely different with, with that sourness lingering that makes you want to go back and have the whole adventure over again um so i think it kind of fits in this oddball it's an oddball beer with this oddball movie um which maybe it's it's probably not for everyone this is if i was going to categorize this this would be a deep search beer Um, i wouldn't recommend this for everyone but if you're feeling a little adventurous and uh you know want to check out the life aquatic i think you should probably pair it with the wee beastie from blue owl brewing company
1: I'm surprised you didn't go for Jimmy Buffett's autour driven land shark.
2: <laughs> I don't even know what that is. The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures, but it's best viewed on an excellent Criterion Collection Blu-ray. If you've seen it, tell us your thoughts at hello at com.
1: Or if you don't listen to your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 4844 Cinema.
0: Stick around, folks. Our Really Red recommendations are coming up next. All right, team. It's almost time to wrap up the show, but not before we get to really read recommendations. So, uh, Peterson, what do you have to recommend this time?
1: Being stuck in quarantine means I could actually finish a television show, which is quite nice. Um, But as of this recording, uh, last night, HBO series, uh, The Plot Against America, which is the new – Show from David Simon, based on a Philip Roth novel from two thousand and four, follows a Jewish family in a alternate history where uh, FDr loses his last term in office and it now goes to Lindbergh uh, Charles Lindbergh being the president um. So it follows uh, this family as Charles Lindbergh ascends to the presidency. And if you know anything about him in real life, he was kind of an anti-Semite Nazi sympathizer. So it is about this family that is slowly um, wrapped into this entire plot. Uh, and um, it is very, very well orchestrated. It's incredibly – suspenseful in the way that a David Simon show can only be. It's about this family kind of having these small intimate moments uh, wrapped up inside of this massive political turmoil. Uh, and I think it is so good. Uh, the standout performance to me is Zoe Kazan, uh, who's an actress I've loved for as long as I've seen her on screen. She is just absolutely incredible uh, in this. She's got Ryder, John Turturro. Um definitely, I highly recommend this It's six episodes six hours long. It is really, really powerful um has absolutely nothing to say about where we are as a society today so um no, this is very uh relevant and topical of what we're dealing with these days, and I highly recommend it um it is ap- you know this seems like it could be a little bit of kind of eat your veggies t v it's absolutely not. Um, it's juicy and it's pulpy and it's very, very good. So that's uh, The Plot Against America from David Simon.
0: God, I still need to finish finish up the deuce, but I do I, – I, the fact that Zoe Kazan has a, a larger role than she did in the deuce uh, really makes me want to just dive in.
1: She is, this is the most we've ever seen her – on any kind of screen, which is great. I you know, I mean, she's usually not ever the star or yeah. even the second star. She's always three or four down. Um, so it's really great to see her get a really – which is this is a meaty, meaty role.
0: Excellent. Jake, what about you? What do you have to recommend?
2: As I talked about earlier, I had to go and watch some French New Wave after this. I, I wanted to watch some Truffaut, and I knew that there was a direct reference to a Truffaut film in this one where uh, Steve Z says, not this one, Klaus. Mm. <laughs> and I remembered it, but I couldn't remember what Antoine Donnell, uh movie it was from. It was Bed and Board or Love on the Run, and either way... Or Stolen Kisses. I, I couldn't remember what one, but I knew that's what I wanted to rewatch. And it was Jules and Jim. So no Antoine Doinel <laughs> movie at all. And I hadn't seen Jules and Jim in uh, probably five years. And so I sat down, watched it start to finish in one view. It's just as great as it was the first time. If you haven't seen it for whatever reason, you really, really need to. So in the, in the Truffaut timeline, it's after Shoot the Piano Player, and then he co-directed a couple movies, did Jules and Jim. And then uh, I don't know, three four years later, did Fahrenheit four fifty one? I think there's another one mixed in there as well. The but peak of his career. <laughs> no, I, I did. I didn't say the man who loved women, <laughs> 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 which is a movie I, I would love to review on here, by the way. But Jules and Jim is is absolutely fantastic. It's um, it's got maybe one of the ultimate. I, I, would you consider her a femme fatale?
1: Uh, it's Maybe I mean, debatable?
2: Original Manic Pixie Dream Girl?
1: Uh, it, yeah, that's, I mean, it's... That by a little closer. Yeah, yeah, it's
2: it's dealing in...
0: It's it's not quite femme fatale, but I get your... Yeah, there's there's sort of tastes of it.
2: She is such an interesting character in that. I, yeah. I She's an, an enigma, and I, 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 I had to think about this movie three or four days after watching it, just because it is... It leaves a lot of questions up in the air in a way that uh, other movies of the time or American films of the time did not do. And it it is it was probably pretty scandalous when it came out in 1962. Uh, Today, maybe not so much, but uh, so find Jules and Jim. You can watch it on uh, Canopy with your library card, which is a thing that I now know exists, or find it on a Criterion Collection Blu-ray. And Chris, what about you?
0: uh my recommendation this time i don't i don't think there's really any connection i guess there's one connection and that's that it comes from a, another texas filmmaker uh but it's one that i just like a week ago didn't even know this movie existed and then happened down this weird rabbit hole of uh looking into stuff about old hobo culture and ended up watching this movie called who is bozo texino directed by uh, Bill Daniel, who is mostly like a visual artist. Um, I think this is the only film that he has uh, directed. He may He's done installations and other things, but um, he's also a, a photographer. He kind of in the uh, 70s and 80s documented a lot of uh, bands on the punk scene, uh, photographed minor threat a lot. Um, and his brother, Lee Daniel, is actually – uh, has shot a bunch of stuff for Linklater, especially early Linklater, uh, shot Slacker, Dazed and Confused, uh, the first two before movies, he shot Boyhood. Um, so there's, there's a bit of a, once again, the, the, the Texas connection there and Linklater, I think is, you know, some sort of executive producer or something on, on this, but this is a short, I mean, it's only like, I think it's just under an hour, uh, documentary, um, Daniel, for what appears to be, I don't know, like I've been trying to figure out the full story, but uh, it looks like for at least a decade, um, just sort of went around documenting um, hobo graffiti and jumping trains and riding trains with folks and taking little uh, Super 8 and 16mm cameras along with him. And his brother uh, Lee would, would shoot stuff as well at, uh, at times, but uh, going around doing this little, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's not your straightforward documentary. It's more like a tone poem sort of thing of just sort of life on the rails as a, as a hobo. And then talking to all these people around um, that, that he runs into and getting little stories. So Um, almost honestly, almost kind of feels at times like, uh, something like slacker from Linklater, uh, just in, you know, it's jumping from here to there, but the title who is Bozo Texino, um, if you wanted to derive a narrative from it, that's the closest thing you get. Bozo Texino is a extremely prolific. He tagged a lot of trains and had a very, uh, kind of iconic tag with, This guy with the big cowboy hat made out of an infinity and um, everyone that he runs into seems to have a different story about who Bozo Texino is or was. And they all like, it's all the sort of thing where it's like, oh, yeah, I know him or I've got a friend who knew him or my, you know, second cousin twice removed knows that he's. And so. So the Robert Johnson of hobo graffiti. (laughs) Kind of, kind of. But. Uh, it honestly gets you intrigued into this mystery of like, who is, okay, who is Bozo Texino? And I won't give anything away, but uh, there are answers and um, it's pretty interesting and it's a fun little ride. And it's only, like I said, it's only an hour uh, worth a watch. You, I ended up watching um, some more graffiti documentaries after that and then uh, another like weird little fun little thing that he Uh, shot with another director about uh, the band Negative Land um, that came out in the mid-90s, which is actually kind of a prolific. uh, That documentary was interesting as well, um, just in like kind of by the end, they're predicting meme culture more or less. Um, But this Who is Bozo Texino? It's available on Canopy. Um, Check it out. I really
2: enjoyed it. Uh, I think you will too. Chris, you've definitely convinced me. I'm going to spend the rest of quarantine watching the Before trilogy. Is that what you were trying to get across to me? <laughs> yep. Because that was the reminder it was like, "Oh man, I'm so behind on Linklater." He didn't shoot, He didn't Linklater. shoot
1: Midnight though.
2: He didn't shoot Midnight, that's correct.
1: No, he shot the first two and you know, only two of the greatest films ever.
2: Linklater is going on on my list of people with a singular vision like Wes Anderson he to me I guess he has a little more range but he really only knows how to make Linklater movies in the best way yeah maybe it's
0: a Texas thing
2: and that's a wrap for another episode of War Starts at Midnight join us next time for a brand new episode of The Magnificent Andersons our ongoing exploration of the works of two American auteurs Paul Thomas Anderson and Wes Anderson next time we're discussing Paul Thomas Anderson's masterpiece There Will Be Blood you can find us on the interwebs at war
0: for show notes and more. And if you've got something to say, you can always email the show at hello at war Or better yet, give us a call and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. Or you can just say hello on Twitter. You can find me
2: at WSAM Pod. I'm at JakeRG23 on Twitter and at award winning filmmaker on myspace.com. <laughs>
1: and I'm at Peterson W. Hill. If you enjoy War Starts at Midnight, please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior Clan, and it'll make you feel awesome.
2: The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck at Lava Sound Studios. And shout out to Man Man for the featured music on this week's show. Find their new album, Dream Hunting in the Valley of the In Between, at manmanband.com. Thanks for listening, folks.
1: I can't wait to drink y'all's milkshake next time.
2: I've never seen a Bond Company stooge stick his neck out like that.
1: Forget Tone Lokes and Heat. (laughs) Tone Lokes and Heat? Yeah,
0: Michael Mann's heat, not that he is <laughs> oh. in heat. <laughs>